On today's Super Bowl special of the US Sports Podcast, first Sky Sports NFL analyst Jeff Reinbold on his football life, and then the host of the Gridiron Show, Will Gavin, breaks down the Falcons-Patriots matchup. It's Super Bowl week. Let's roll. Episode 18 of the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. A great time to be a sports fan. I love this time of the year. The Super Bowl is approaching this Sunday. The NBA is finally starting to get exciting. How about four overtimes? Hawks, Knicks, an all-time classic, or maybe I'm going a bit too far on that. Paul Millsap, underrated. Spring training countdown posts, a wash on social media. And hey, we're talking about Tiger Woods for no reason again. Later on, the man with the loudest voice on radio, at least in my opinion, Will Gavin of TalkSport and Gridiron fame, breaks down the X's and O's ahead of Super Bowl 51. Tom Brady against Matt Ryan, Matt Patricia scheming a Pats defense that has to stop the likes of Julio Jones, Mohamed Sanu, Devonta Freeman and company. And Bill Belichick going for his fifth Super Bowl ring alongside his adopted son, hashtag Tommy. On deck though, Jeff Reinbold from the Sky Sports NFL broadcast and recently promoted to defensive coordinator of the CFL's Hamilton Tiger Cats. Congratulations to Jeff. He's been coaching all of his life, but would still rather surf. Just wait until you hear the story of when he got his first tattoo and some interesting news on the future of Johnny Manziel. Here's Jeff Reinbold. Jeff Reinbold, thanks for joining us on the US Sports Podcast. We're in the UK office of the NFL and you're on the TV over there doing the telestrator. <laughs> what, what are you thinking? You know, I don't know. I was watching this Atlanta game and, and uh, they were really, really good. I mean, you know, I go back to the 99 greatest show on turf. You know, you talk about an offense that was diverse and could attack you a number of different ways and had a, you know, had a coordinator in Mike Martz at that time with the Rams that was, you know, push the ball down the field, make big plays. And I, and I don't know if, you know, I don't know if there's been another offense like that until now. And I think we did a statistical comparison and this Falcon offense is even more explosive than that, than that St. Louis Ram offense was. Do you evaluate your, the job you've done every time you go on Sky Sports? Do you look back on it and do you work on those things like you would a coach or a player? Yeah. You know what? I'll be honest with you, uh, Max, uh, that, when I come home from a show, it's just like a game. You know, when, when you finish a game and uh, it's usually about six or seven hours before you can get any sleep because you go through, you replay everything in your mind, every call you made, every situation, all of it. And then the same thing is true when you're, when you're doing television because you want to be able to put the best product out there, not not for you, but and and really more for the fans than even the people that you work with see I I have a different view of what I do I'm I do television not because I like being on television I do television because I think it helps grow the game here I think it is the medium that has the greatest impact on fan and player development in a country I that's why football is a uniquely built game for television because the stops and starts and the ability to go back in and and use a telestration machine and all those other things. So um, that's part of why I come over and do this is because I think it helps grow the game. What do you think about the Sky Sports broadcast generally? I think think we've grown an awful lot from where we started. You know, it was really – when I first started, it was all by – just by mistake, really. I mean, uh, Fox – was using NFL Europe broadcasts 
as kind of proving grounds for their young broadcaster. Troy Aikman started that way. Moose Johnson started that way. Baldinger started that way. A number of them did. And uh, I had to uh, – somebody was supposed to come over. I think it was Darren Woodson was supposed to come over and, and do a game and couldn't make it at the last second, so they just asked me to fill in for them. And I just kind of sat in there and, and I watched – you know, I watched it grow from that experience where it was really just a just a launch pad or a testing ground for broadcasters to now it's become a legitimate niche sport in the UK. And the broadcasts, I think, ha- have continued to, you know, expand as the, the, you know, the fan base has expanded. You know, we never had the technology. We never had the telestration machine until a few years ago. Now we've got the... The tactics table that that you know that soccer uses that is an unbelievable piece of machinery that allows you to break the game down and, and you know teach the game. I'm fascinated by how guys like Aikman and Collinsworth are able to during a broadcast tell you as soon as the play is over with what just happened, what the quarterback was looking for, what the defense was doing. How is that done? And obviously, there's researchers there too. Well, I think that part of it is because they played. You know, they understand the concepts of the game. Now, when you talk about, you know, for me certainly, it's it's easier because it's what I do for a living. I mean, I I've watched so much film, and really, the game. Once you understand how the game kind of breaks down structurally, it's easy to understand, and there are certain positions that you can watch on the field and know what everybody else around them are doing based upon that one player's reaction so if you're sitting upstairs and you watch the safety for example you can you can pretty much know what everybody in the in the secondary is doing if you watch the middle linebacker you can pretty much know what's happening at the line of scrimmage what happens typically to to young coaches and young viewers or new viewers is they have a tendency to follow the ball and that's okay, but that's not going to give you the overall picture of what happened in the game and why it happened in the game. And that's that's why I enjoy being an analyst. I, I would not want to be a play-by-play guy, but I really enjoy the analyst role because it gives you an opportunity to really break the game down for the viewers. So you've coached in Canada, you've coached in America, in Europe too, now you're doing TV in the UK. Where is your heart? <laughs> right now, my heart has always been the same place. It's in a little town called Haleiwa on the north shore of Oahu, and it's on a surfboard out <laughs> out in Puena Point. But um, that's my that's my passion. That's what I really love. I, Hawaii is home to me. It'll always be home to me. I've been so – Max, it's amazing, man. I, you think about a kid that – grew up the way I grew up which is not special we had you know lower middle class family five kids you know um, and to think that this game has given me an opportunity to do the things and see the places I've been in my life is incredible I think it's a testimony to what sport can do you know how it can change your life and change your not only your your perspective on life too you know because you don't understand it as as Americans, you know, I think we're kind of sheltered from the world a little bit. And when you get over here and you live over here and you're, you know, you're in the culture over here. And when I talk about here, I'm talking about Europe or, or, or the UK. Obviously, you gain a, a much, much different perspective on, on the world. 
Uh, you're currently coaching in Hamilton, the Tiger Cats, and you said you know you had a place that was bigger than a shoebox, smaller than a cardboard box. <laughs> what what do you need in life? I don't need very much, and I've and I've learned now that you know all my kids are gone. You know, I, I have four children, three boys and a girl. They're all out of the house now, so obviously that that means you need less. And what I've learned over again over the experience over living is that. I'm ne- I'm not tied to things. I'm tied to people and experiences, but not to things. So um, you learn very quickly that you know there's a there's a movie with Robert De Niro. I, I can't remember what it's called, but he makes a statement in there: never have anything that you can't get rid of in 30 minutes or less. And that's really kind of way, the way my life is. I think there was a point for a number of years where. You could take everything I own and put it in two bags, and and that's just the way I lived, and I, I I've been comfortable with that. It's just um, like I say, I'm more into experiences and people than I am into possessions. Who was your coaching hero growing up? Ah, man, that's that's easy to say. That's easy to say because the guy that's been the most influential on in my career has, uh, without a shadow of a doubt, really more influential in my life than anybody <clears throat> without a shadow of a doubt is uh, Dick Vermeil. And uh, Coach is a Hall of Famer as a coach. I mean, he's taken two teams to the Super Bowl. He, he took a bad UCLA team and beat, a, quote, un, you know, an unbeatable Ohio State team in the Rose Bowl. He, I mean, his play, his teams have always – you know, played far beyond their physical capabilities. Uh, but as good a coach as Coach Vermeil is, he's a better guy. He's a better man. He's a, he's a Max. I I can't I can't even describe to you how much it meant to me to have an opportunity to work with him when uh, I spent uh, a time with Kansas City when he was with the Chiefs. And when when that time came to an end, I went and saw him. I said, Coach, I want to. I just want to thank you. And I said, I got to tell you, when you're around somebody that you admire a great deal, you know, one of your heroes, which is what he was to me as a young coach, and then you're in the day to day grind with them, and you see all the different situations that they get put in, and all the opportunities that they have to do something where you would just you'd cringe a little bit and go, gosh, I wish Coach wouldn't have done that like that, or gosh, I wish he wouldn't have treated that person like that. I never once saw anything like that from him. And, I mean, you're talking about how he dealt with his players, how he dealt with his coaches, how he dealt with his wife, how he dealt with the you know, the, the lady in the lunch line, the, the kid on the, you know, wanting an autograph on the street, you know. I mean, he was just... Uh, or he is just an amazing human being. Regarding players then, coaching them, what's the hardest thing to deal with? Well, Jack Bicknell, who was my college coach, told me when I was – he was the actual one that got me into coaching. My dad was in pro baseball for 30 years and really didn't want me coaching because he felt like there's no money in it, there's no stability in it, it's hard on families, all the negatives. He he gave me all the negatives. But Coach Bicknell said to me, he said, Jeff, the hardest thing you're going to have to deal with is – it's not going to mean it's not going to mean as much to them as it meant to you, and I think he's been I think he's right in that, and I think even all the way up into pro football that, you know, this game is so incredible to me. I mean, I love the game, and I would be I'm a fan first. I I uh, I would watch it. You know, I shoots I drive by the park and see two you know two. Uh, youth teams playing I'm gonna stop and watch because I just love the game and 
it meant everything to me as a player. And when you what you find out is just because a player is a good player doesn't mean he really loves the game. And it, it's shocking, really, when you think about guys that are making their living. Some of them really don't care very much for football, you know, and but they're just really good at it. So that's that's how they make their living. You have a history in Canada coaching and. I'm interested to know what you think the NFL could learn from the CFL and what rules they could implement. Oh, I think, you know what, Max, the first one I think that, that's going to come is the ability to challenge for a defensive pass interference. And, and uh, you know, that's got to come because the game, you, it's just so fast. It's too hard to officiate. And there's so many bang-bang plays. And you, you think about the Seahawk-Atlanta game earlier this year where Julio Jones is just gets mugged and they don't make a call. And that was really the turning point in that game. And you, you want the best possible game. And I think um, I, we have more ability to challenge in the CFL than they do in the NFL, and I think that's coming. I think the rules in the, in the kicking game in the CFL are uh, really, really attractive to the fan because there is no fair catching punts. You have to return the punt. There is, there are so many more ways to score in the kicking game up there than there are in, in the U.S. game. Our game is much more akin to, <coughs> excuse me, our game is probably much more akin to rugby. I think, I think if fans actually saw CFL football, they would be drawn to it very much because it moves faster than NFL does. It's, like I say, it's much more, uh, it's, it, you see a closer resemblance to rugby than you do uh, NFL football. Does Johnny Manziel take an offer from the CFL for next season? Well, Johnny Manziel's on our negotiation list, so if he's going to play in the CFL, he's going to play for us. Um, I don't know. You know, that's an interesting question. We've had Johnny Manziel on our negotiation list. See, we we do it differently. We draft Canadian players, but U.S. players are put on a, a what's a thirty-five man negotiation list. So, for example, if I put you on. Uh, I put Max Little on, on the neg list. That means no other team can negotiate with you. Uh, you become our property for a period of time. We've had Johnny on that list since he was, I think, a sophomore at Texas A&M. He's, he, his skill set is more suited to our game, um, you know, with the wider field. Our field, is, our field is 13 yards wider than an NFL field, and it's 20 yards longer. So – Guys who can move around and make plays with their feet at quarterback are really, really important in our league. And you look through the history of our game, Warren Moon, Doug Flutie, the, you know, the, all the great quarterbacks had that ability. I read that you coached a team in Canada that had four 1,000 receiving yard, uh, receivers. Um, was that your best time in Canada, or what would you well, do? Well, you know, that, that was an amazing year. That was, not, it was my first year, and if you can imagine this, your first year coaching in pro football, and you get – to coach the receivers on a team they have 4000 yard receivers and Doug Flutie threw for 60 I'm not sure the exact number now it's more more yards than anybody in the history of pro football has thrown for in one season and that was a phenomenal year and uh, I've been really blessed that way uh, I went to SMU and I was coaching receivers at SMU and you know all four of the kids that I was coaching ended up making it in the NFL Emmanuel Sanders still playing for Denver um Cole Beasley led the Cowboys in receiving this year. Aldrick Robinson's going to go to his first uh, Super Bowl this year with the Falcons. And we had another kid, Darius Johnson, who played two years with the Falcons. So I've been really blessed to be around great players. But the player you coached that made the NFL that you were most surprised about? 
Um, I think probably a guy named Nick Ferguson, who's a great story, and I, and I use his his story all the time. Nick was didn't even start on his high school team. He went to uh, a high school in Overtown, Miami, um, and really the coach used him as a tackling dummy. Um, then he walked on at a little school called Morris Brown up in Atlanta. Doesn't even have football anymore. Uh, played there for. Four years was a really good student, and the NCAA has a program where if you if you have a year of eligibility left, you can go as a graduate student to any other school, and you don't have to sit you know transfer rule. So he went to the offices at Georgia Tech, which is in Atlanta, and the big Division One program in the at that in the ACC at that time. And he said, "I want to play football." And they looked at him like, "Who are you?" And he said, "Well, my name's Nick Ferguson. I played at Morris Brown." And they said, "Hey, listen, you know." This this is this is big time college football, son. This isn't just you know pickup football. So anyway, long story short, he wouldn't leave. You know, he just kept pestering and pestering. They gave him an opportunity to play. He played one season there. Came uh, w- went to Cincinnati as a free agent. They cut him. Came up to Canada. I traded to get him. He played a year for me. I cut him the next year, and I can remember him sitting across the desk from me. And I said, Nick, you know it's it's. You know, you had a you had a good run here, but you know we got to move on. And he said, "You're making a mistake." And I said, "Well, I may be making a mistake, Nick, but you're cut, right? So you know, you need to think about what you're going to do after football." He goes, "I'm not leaving." I said, well, "Nick, it doesn't work that way. You don't get a chance to stay. You you got to go. You got to be out of the country, and because you know you're up there as a on a work visa, you know pro sport visa." I said, "Your visa's going to run out. You got to get out of the country." He goes, "I'm not leaving." I said, well, "All right, here's what we'll do." I had an extra room at my house. I said, you can stay at my house for one week and look, tell your agent to get you work, but you got one week. He would ride my bicycle from my house, which is about four miles from the stadium, to the stadium, watch us practice every day. Lo and behold, we play our first game. Guy gets a hamstring injury, so I bring him back. His answer to me is, see, I told you. And But he goes, I come to NFL Europe, we uh, get a call from Jerry Venisi, who was with the Bears at that time, said, hey, we're looking for a defensive back that we can allocate into NFL Europe. And I said, well, why don't you, tr- why don't you sign Nick Ferguson? They looked at him on tape and said, nah, he's not fast enough to be a corner. He's not big enough to be a safety. We, you know, we'll, we'll get another guy. Well, they couldn't find another guy to sign and send, so they sign him, send him to us. He goes back to the Bears. They cut him comes back to us the second year in NFL Europe. The Bills sign him. He goes to training camp with the Bills after our season. They cut him. They put him on the practice roster, and I called him, and I said, Nick, congratulations, you're on an NFL practice roster. At least you're on the team. Uh, you know, it's been your dream since you're a boy to play in the NFL. He said, Jeff, he said, Jeff, you just don't get it, do you? And I said, what are you talking about? I don't get it. I said, I get it. You're on the practice roster. They can cut you in a heartbeat. I said, you enjoy every second of it because it's not going to last very long. He said, no, no, no. He said, I'm never getting cut again. I said, Nick, you're on the practice roster. They change those guys like they're socks. He said, no, you're not listening to me. I'm never getting cut again. Well, lo and behold, nine years later, I I go to Houston, Texas to watch the Patriots and the Texans play in the last game of the year. And that was the game that Nick said, I've had enough. And he retired nine years later and never was cut again. So... It can happen. It's crazy, but it can happen. That's amazing. Yeah, That's really amazing. Story. You've coached every single position I can think of, really. Is there a position you haven't coached? And when you are assigned to a different team, say that you've gone from DBs to receivers, 
do you just know the positions or do you have to put in a lot of work? Well, I think that the if you've been in it as long as I've been in it and you have an inquisitive mind like I have always. I, I never felt like just coaching one thing was enough, like, you know, if just being a DB coach. Or, or I, I wanted to know how everything worked and how every position was played. And I, I've been, like I said, I've been so fortunate to be around so many great coaches in my career that some of it just had to rub off by osmosis, I guess. And, and uh, you know, they've been, I've been really blessed to have people care about me on the, on my journey and take me aside and help me with, you know, learning how to, you know, be a coach in this game. And so that, that kind of, I guess that kind of mentorship, if you will, has really been in, instrumental in teaching me the game. Uh, newsflash NFL Europe used to exist and you were a big part of it how did you find yourself in Europe well again it's just it's one of those crazy deals where uh, I had been coaching at Las Vegas which was an expansion team in, in the CFL in the CFL that team went under it it went went bankrupt and folded and I obviously I had to have work I had you know family to take care of and and uh when that happens, what do you do? You call the people that you know, say, I, you know, I'm looking for a job. I've been so freaking lucky, and I called my college coach, and his name was Jack Bicknell, and Jack had just taken the Barcelona job in NFL Europe, and he said, let me call Galen Hall, who was the head coach of the Rhine Fire, and uh, Galen needed a secondary coach, and, and uh, that's how I got to NFL Europe. And then from there, it just, you know, kind of – takes care of itself I, I was really lucky I worked actually my my there were only two of us on defense on that staff me and another guy by the name of AJ Douay who you may remember was a great player for the Miami Dolphins on those really good Dolphin teams that that he's Super Bowl winner and had a blast just had an incredible amount of fun working with him and with Coach Hall and that you know is how it happened. I'm worried a little bit that the NFL doesn't really have a soul anymore. You've got St. Louis going to LA, mm. Oakland going to Las Vegas, San Diego going to LA. Um, is it just all about money these days? Well, I, it's obviously number one. It's a business. I mean, th these guys are, you know, it's a, it's the strangest system in the world because it's a basically a communistic system where everything, all the revenue shared, and so on and so forth. But you've got 32 of the biggest capitalists in the world that that run the team. So. Uh, they are always cognizant of the fact that it is a business. And I think the league is cognizant of the fact that it is a business. It's unusual in European sport. You can't even comprehend it because, you know, when I was in Scotland last week, we were talking about that. That question came up about how I felt about the teams moving. I said, well, I feel probably I'm more of a traditionalist. I don't like to see the teams move. I said, can you imagine if, you know, if uh, Celtic, left and went to Inverness and you know I mean that, that it just wouldn't it doesn't it doesn't wash it doesn't work and I think you know what happens to those communities is is criminal because you know you have your soul ripped out I mean every little kid that's a St. Louis Rams fan you know what do they fill the void with you, you know you're not going to become a Kansas City Chiefs fan because that's your hated blood rival right so if you're a San Diego fan and you see your team go up the freeway for a new stadium and, you know, I just don't, I don't, I really, really think that there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. I, I can't even begin to fathom 
the L.A. Uh, situation where you got two teams, and then now my team, the team that I grew up loving, the Oakland Raiders, are moving to Las Vegas. I mean, I just it, it's hard for me to even have that come out my mouth. Last couple of quick ones then. Uh, why do you always tweet in capital letters? Because I'm absolutely freaking blind. I, I, it's, it, first of all, I can't spell very well, right? And the second thing is if I, if, I don't, if I don't do it in caps, I can't read what I write. And so that's why everybody thinks I'm shouting all the time. I'm not shouting all the time. I just can't read. I'm just so freaking blind. Would you rather surf or coach? Um, to be real honest with you, I'd rather surf, to be honest with you. That's that's where I enjoy, you know, and, and maybe it's because I don't get to do it a lot, but I really, that to me is the ultimate passion that I have. I can't, when I go, I always go home to Hawaii right before training camp starts, and I, I live in this little hut, and I when I say hut, that's, that's what I'm saying. I mean, the thing doesn't have electricity, and there's just a bed, and that's it, and I, I'm in the water every minute I can be, and I don't have a phone, I don't have a TV, I don't have a, I mean nothing, and it's just heaven to me. Can you remember your first tattoo? Yeah, I. I uh, <laughs> that's a story too. That's a football story. I'm a, I'm a little kid in South Bend, Indiana, and uh, my teammate on my eighth grade football team, his dad uh, was an usher at Notre Dame stadium and he got us both jobs selling programs the morning of the game so you'd get 50 programs and you as soon as you sold them you brought the money back in and then you could you know we weren't we weren't supposed to go in the stadium but we'd always sneak into the games and you know you keep moving so that the you didn't get caught well there one of the places we would hide was down where the visiting team came into the tunnel at Notre Dame Stadium and there, so he and I were down there dicking around like kids do when, you know, when, you're, when you're in eighth grade. And I remember Miami was playing Notre Dame that day. And it was a cold, you know, kind of late October day. And it's kind of half snowing a little bit. And all of a sudden, the visitor's locker room door swings open. And out walks this guy from Miami. This kid played linebacker at Miami. And he was a, he was a Vietnam War veteran. And he had his shirt cut off way up on it, you know, way up high he had his his stomach exposed you know half shirt like they were in the war in the south in those days and he had a big tattoo on his left arm and i can just remember being so fascinated i thought man that was the coolest dude i've ever seen one day i'm gonna have arms like that i'm gonna play college football and i'm gonna get a tattoo just like that and i, ne- I don't think i ever got the arms <laughs> but but i did get the tattoo that's funny last one then Super Bowl 51 it's New England Atlanta what are you expecting to happen and uh, what can we expect on Sky you know I I, I really like Atlanta and you know I said this I've I got emotional tie to Atlanta because I've had the opportunity to see Tommy Morstead who we coached at SMU win a, win a Super Bowl I've had an opportunity to see Emmanuel Sanders win a Super Bowl I really thought this was going to be Cole Beasley's year this year and uh, but uh, it's it's really all about seeing Aldrick Robinson stand underneath that confetti. Uh, I really hope Atlanta can win the game, but I, I think it's going to be tough for him because once you give Belichick an extra week to prepare, it's, it's hard to beat. Thanks to Jeff. If your biggest coaching influence is Dick Vermeil, you know you've had a charmed life. One thing also Jeff told me, and we ran out of time to record this, 
Uh, one of his favourite surfing stories. <laughs> I wouldn't call it his favourite surfing story. I'd call it his scariest. Where he goes to surf, there was a very bad incident with a shark uh, and a surfer uh, a couple of days before this. And Jeff was driving past the area where that happened. And he had his surfboard on his car, always did. And at this point, no one was in the water because of what happened to this guy previously. Usually, it's a very popular spot to surf. And I think it's in Hawaii. I can't be sure. And Jeff said, okay, I'm definitely going to go down there and surf two days after the event, even though what happened just happened. So Jeff takes his board down, goes and starts surfing. And as soon as he gets into the water, he sees a shark. Right next to his board, he sees a shark. So what Jeff decides to do is lay across the board because apparently what sharks do when they see your feet or your arms dangling over, that's what they're attacking because they have to attack up straight through the water. So Jeff lies as straight as he can, as flat as a board, no pun intended, arms flat, legs flat, so he covers his entire body on top of the surfboard. And he's scared, man. He's saying, he's praying for his life, not now, I've got kids, I've got, I've got my career, everything's going well, not now, please. And he just panics, he's waiting, something's going to happen, and suddenly, the shark comes out of the water, and it's a turtle. <laughs> It's a turtle, and you know what? It was a turtle, and that meant Jeff stayed in the water all day, despite having a live scare, despite the fact that it wasn't a shark in the end. He stayed in the water. That man loves his surfing. Right, Jeff wants the Falcons to win the Super Bowl on Sunday, but how are they going to do it? Let's get right into the matchup between Atlanta and New England. Super Bowl 51 is this Sunday in Houston, and a man who is already there... The Gridiron Show's Will Gavin. So joining me on the US Sports Podcast now is Will Gavin, who's heading off to Houston tomorrow, the lucky bleeder. Uh, He hasn't packed yet. Will, you looking forward to the week? I'm unbelievably looking forward to the week, and I can't believe you've revealed to everyone that I haven't packed yet. This is uh, a terrifying and dreadful situation, and uh, I've left myself way, way too much to do at the last moment, as is always the way. But uh, no, I'm unbelievably excited, of course. Well, we should point out that we're recording this on a Friday week before the Super Bowl. So the Pro Bowl is this Sunday. Uh, just quickly on that, actually, what do you make of the new changes? They've got the dodgeball, they're in Orlando. I think it's a farce. I don't think anyone cares. But what about you? Oh, in general, no one cares about the Pro Bowl. It is an absolute farce. All of those points are completely valid. And particularly the number of players who are brought in. Like, for example, Andy Dalton is on course now for about 10 Pro Bowls. Um, I'm literally just in the process of writing for a sport magazine a list of the top 20 greatest quarterbacks of all time uh, that we've put together at Gridiron and uh, writing little blurbs about all of them. And when you realise that, you know, Joe Montana only went to eight Pro Bowls and and uh, and things like that. And then you're going to see these guys who in their career, because they've been chosen as alternates, are going to have gone to double-digit Pro Bowls who are below-average quarterbacks. It's completely become farcical. But the skills contest was brilliant. The That's just what the Pro Bowl should be. The Pro Bowl should be like the combine, but with the best players from the NFL. Agreed. Um, what's the number one essential you need to take to Houston? Um, my mixing desk. <laughs> More important than underwear. Uh, maybe, yeah, because I feel like I can buy underwear out there, whereas to buy all the equipment to broadcast for talk sport and to broadcast for the podcast and for Gridiron and everything else, that would be really expensive out there. Like, I can just go to Old Navy and buy a whole new wardrobe if my bag gets lost. That's fine. All of this stuff would be, uh, I'd be lost without it. 
So what number of Super Bowl will this be for you? Uh, this is my third. So my first one was out in Arizona for Super Bowl 49. I was out for Super Bowl 50 in San Francisco last year. And then Houston. I, if, if listeners don't know me, Max, I am not the smallest man in the world. And Houston is not a city, even in February, which is designed for a man of my width. Uh, it's going to be about 25, 26 degrees and humid. And so uh, the other thing essential is shorts, I've decided. Good man. I should give you. I should say you work for Gridiron Podcast, Gridiron Magazine, and Talk Sport as well. You can hear Will on all of those. It's New England and Atlanta then in the Super Bowl. And I wanted to ask you first of all, the ch- going back to the championship weekend, why mm-hmm. wasn't Roger Goodell in Foxborough? Because he won't give you an, on- an honest answer. What do? You, why do you think? Was it because Georgia Dome was having its last game, or is it because he's Look- scared? Look, he. There is a certain number of NFL fans. All Patriots fans, obviously, but even those who dislike the Patriots, who love the idea of Tom Brady being the Super Bowl MVP and him having to be handed that trophy in the same season as his four-game ban by Roger Goodell. You know, by the time we get round to the next CBA in 2020, I don't think the NFL commissioner is going to have the powers to do what Roger Goodell did over the last two years. And it was a ludicrous situation, even for someone who, on a personal level, I have a huge amount of respect for the Patriots. doesn't mean I'm their biggest fan, but I have a huge amount of respect for them. Um, but, you know, if you'd given me the option of going to either of those games before the games last weekend, and I'd had the chance of going and seeing that Falcons offense going up against Aaron Rodgers on that eight-game winning streak, and I could only go to one, I would have 100% gone to that game. So whilst, yeah, I think he probably is a little bit scared, I, there's a good justifiable reason for him not doing it. There's a lot of people that like the Falcons in this game, but I think this whole week we, the media goes crazy on the Super Bowl and I think no doubt it's going to be all about the Patriots, unfortunately because the media are going to take this stance of Goodell and also Brady's legacy. How much are we underselling Atlanta? I, I think it's, uh, it's a funny one because having learned over the last two seasons at the Super Bowl, when you sit on... Um, on Radio Row, so in a convention centre at the at the host city, they set up this huge media centre where 200-odd radio stations, most of them from the US, but some from around the world, including us from, from TalkSport. We broadcast live, we interview players, both current and former. Yeah, we get celebrities on. It's, it's a great week, but you end up talking about the game a lot. And I think I talked myself into picking either team about 15 times last year. Um, and you almost talk yourself around into the fact that it's going to be a tight game. It's going to be a brilliant game because there are so many factors to consider. The big key in this one is for the Atlanta Falcons, just how good that offense has been. And look, I'm a, a San Francisco 49ers fan. And if Kyle Shanahan isn't announced as the 49ers head coach within a week of the Super Bowl, I might be done with the sport because... I'm so excited about what he's going to bring to San Francisco. I think he's the greatest offensive mind currently working in the NFL. I think what he's designed and schemed there and what he's turned that offense into has been absolutely phenomenal. But as you will hear repeated many times over the next uh, over the next week and a half, uh, this is the seventh time the number one defense and the number one offense have gone up against each other in, in a Super Bowl and the defense have come out on top five out of the previous six times. Uh, It's an old adage, defense wins championships. It might be a bit cheesy, but I watched back to that championship game and I watched what the Patriots did to the Steelers. And 
if you go all the way back to the weekend before and you watch the Chiefs-Steelers game and you watch the fourth quarter, the Chiefs completely changed how they defended the Steelers. They moved to a kind of five-man front, bringing an extra man onto the line. And that forced the the, uh, Steelers into... playing kind of single man up with their offensive line. So when it came to blocking for Le'Veon Bell, or as it turned into in that game in the uh, last weekend, not Le'Veon Bell due to the injury, but they weren't able to run all those exciting run schemes they run where they get the guard to move up to the second level, create the extra holes. And it's like the Patriots watched that fourth quarter against the Chiefs and went... That is how we're going to beat them because they did it constantly during that game. And it's because Bill Belichick, along with Matt Patricia, are the best defensive schemers in the league. They might not have the best defense in terms of talent, but they know how to look at another team. They know how to figure them out. And so if anyone can figure out this seemingly unbeatable Falcons offense and if anybody can do it, particularly given two weeks to do it, then I believe it's that brain trust in New England. And that's what gives them the edge It's the coaching more than the talent on the field. There's that interesting matchup, how New England's secondary will deal with Ryan using the backs, Tevin Coleman, Devonta Freeman. He'll use them as pass weapons as well as runners. How do you see Patricia dialing it up against that Falcons offense? I think it's a really interesting point, and I think the big issue for the Patriots on that is that when you go up against a team like the Steelers, you can double-team Antonio Brown, and beyond him, you've got the likes of you know, Ladarius Green injured, Martavis Bryant suspended, and nobody else could seem to catch a ball all day long. Whereas, well, as you pointed out there, they've got two running backs who both can be threats in the passing game as well as in the running game. And they also have managed to get great seasons out of the likes of Taylor Gabriel on the Falcons' offense. They, they seem to be able to create these great weapons. So if you go and you double-team Julio Jones and you take him out of the game... In, in games when Julio Jones has less than 50 yards or less than three catches, the Falcons are 6-0 and this season because their offense just goes brilliant. That means we're really now going 10-9 on nine with a much better offense than you've got as a defense. So if Patricia's going to get a great performance out of this team, what it's going to require is... Dante Hightower to be brilliant in uh, um, in coverage. It's going to require Logan Ryan and, and Malcolm Butler to stick to their assignments and not allow themselves to get drawn out by the brilliantly drawn-up offense, the crossing routes. It's going to be interesting to see whether they go kind of hard man or zone because they're one of the few defenses in the NFL who can switch and switch well. A lot of people wanted to talk about the Steelers against the Patriots and say, why weren't they... Why weren't they going man when the Patriots were completely picking apart their zone defense? And it was purely because they don't have that ability. They've never switched a man all year. They've never trained it. It's like in soccer, telling a team that always play 4-4-2 to suddenly play with three at the back when you don't have the personnel to do that. They're just going to make mistakes. They're going to be out of position and actually they're going to find themselves getting more trouble. I think the real key, the real other key for the Patriots as well is that Malcolm Brown uh, and Alan Branch were brilliant against the Steelers and their front four is really underrated in terms of the pressure they get and in terms of their ability in the run defense. So, yes, those guys are good on the outside, those two running backs, but if you can stop them doing anything up the middle and then bring safety help on the outside, bring linebacker help on the outside, then actually you can prevent those mismatches from happening and so it's all about everyone's it it's cheesy but it's the Patriots way do your job if you do if each individual man does their job they should be able to beat them but it's it is if I was trying to scheme against the Falcons offense you could give me a year and I don't think I'd be able to figure it out 
one obvious convention that a lot of casual fans will probably want to see is Malcolm Butler, like you mentioned. In the championship game, the, the, the game plan, obviously, part of the Patriots was to take out Antonio Brown. Do you think we'll see that with Julio Jones? And in that case, is Mohamed Sanu the guy who essentially wins them the game if he's going to have a big one? Yeah, I, I, it's, I think the running backs might have a bigger say in it than Mohamed Sanu. I also think that... Um, you can't count out Taylor Gabriel. You know, Cleveland drafted five wide receivers this year and they cut Taylor Gabriel. And Taylor Gabriel has turned into looking like a real true number two wide out there. So, uh, yeah, it's, I'd really, I really, that's going to be the most fascinating thing. When I'm, hopefully our seats are similar to what they were for the last two Super Bowls where we're almost kind of behind the end zone. Because whilst as a fan, you like to be down uh, sideline, I like to be able to see the formations, be able to see from behind and be able to say, okay, so how have they lined up on Julio Jones? How are they matching up on him? What's quite interesting with both of these offenses is they both have, both have running, both have fullbacks that they use quite regularly, probably on 30 plus percent of their snaps. And what you saw the Falcons doing a lot against the Packers was taking their fullback, Patrick DeMarco, and moving him out wide, like spreading him out like a wide receiver. Now, it's very rare you're going to get a good matchup on a fullback, but when an offense does that, particularly with Kyle Shanahan, and you see the Patriots do it as well. What you want to watch every time they do that, you want to watch who goes with Patrick DeMarco. If he moves out to become the outside wide receiver and he's on a cornerback, then you know the Patriots are playing pure zone defense. They are... uh, Then you've got... Julio Jones is so able to exploit that and Matt Ryan will know. Every play he'll have drawn up. If we're going against zone, I'm going to look to the left of the field. If we're going against man, I'm going to look to the right of the field. So watch out for those times when they make movements on the line and watch what the Patriots do against it. Because if DeMarco splits out wide and a big burly linebacker goes with him, well then you know they're manning up and probably you'll be able to run the ball and have success. And that's what Kyle Shanahan's doing so well. And it's almost making it so that we spent so long talking about Peyton Manning being able to read a defense the moment he steps up and see what they're going to be able to do. They've created that in Matt Ryan by allowing him to make those shifts, to make those changes, to spread people out wide. And then he can go, right, I now know what you're doing. You've totally shown your hand and I'm going to beat you. I don't want to criticize Matt Ryan. I'm not going to. He's a top three quarterback in the league. But do you think he's this good without Kyle Shanahan? Is Tom Brady this good without Bill Belichick? You know, you could ask that question about almost anyone. And and if Carl Shanahan, I genuinely believe that if the Falcons hadn't promoted Dan Quinn to a head coach position or brought him in as a head coach in the last two years, then you would see a similar situation in Atlanta to what you saw in Tampa Bay this year, where they would get rid of the head coach and promote Kyle Shanahan themselves. But the job Dan Quinn has done has been so phenomenal that what you've got to hope is that behind Kyle Shanahan, you've got a a quarterbacks coach there who um, came with him Uh, came with Shanahan, was with him at the Broncos, was with him in Washington as well. And you've got to hope that he knows Kyle Shanahan's system well enough that he can continue to run it and work with Matt Ryan beyond this year. But it's been interesting to hear Matt Ryan's points on this and Matt Ryan's discussion on this because he's been saying throughout the year how much Kyle Shanahan listened to him in the offseason and how it became this real symbiotic relationship between the two of them and so no I don't think he does do what he's done this year without Kyle Shanahan but equally I don't think Kyle Shanahan does what he's done with many other quarterbacks you have to have that great working relationship and it's going to be fascinating to see next year assuming Shanahan does end up in San Francisco what he does about the quarterback position there who he tries to bring in and what the guys do in Atlanta 
with Matt Ryan to continue this sort of success? Because you wouldn't be all that surprised, even though they're improving on defense, and that's obviously Dan Quinn's big strength from his time at the Seahawks. You wouldn't be that surprised to see Atlanta almost as a one-and-done team, that they do brilliantly well this year and then drop off a cliff next year because they can't get the same kind of offensive production. Maybe not drop off a cliff, but you know, there wouldn't be that big a surprise if they didn't make it back to the Super Bowl again in the next five years. Talking to Dan Quinn, this will be his third Super Bowl he's coached in, obviously, with the Seahawks previously. Everyone could see that Atlanta's offense was very good, and he's improved the defense, he's improved the, the dynamic of the team. He didn't. He was very, stre- he very stressed a lot that he didn't want it to be Seattle East. He didn't want to take everything he learned in Seattle and move on to Atlanta. But what have you seen from his personality go on to this team in general? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because initially it was Seattle East. Initially it was, I'm going to play that same cover three defense. I'm going to rely on Desmond Trufant on the outside to be our Richard Sherman. And he drafted Keanu Neal this year, who has turned into the kind of Earl Thomas style safety that they needed him to be. But when Desmond Trufant went down early in the year, you saw almost you saw the cogs working on the defense over the next three or four games. You saw them try and figure out how they could still be successful without being able to run that pure cover three scheme that they ran, that they have run so successfully and so well in Seattle over the past five seasons now. Um, I think he's got incredible production out of rookies and second-year guys. Vic Beasley has been brilliant this year, the sack leader. He's been excellent on the outside. And I think that you see what Dayon Jones has done in the middle and what he can offer them in blitz scheming, what he can offer them in coverage, what he can offer them against the run. He, they, these guys have grown and grown and grown, along with Keanu Neal, who I've already mentioned as well. And you just start to feel like, as he's been allowed to bring his players in who play this tough hard-hitting and very fast form of football because that's the key thing that Seattle scheme and and it's going to be fascinating to see what Gus Bradley does next season now that he's been brought in in San Diego because whilst they've got incredibly exciting pass rush they don't have uh, brilliant guys in the middle in terms of pace and speed and you need Bobby Wagner you need Earl Thomas you need Cam Chancellor you need guys who their closing speed is just unbelievable they can be on the other side of the field and you see the quarterback go for a toss go for a short pass and by the time that running back has hit the line of scrimmage they've completely traversed the field they've got the the kind of the speed of your top-end wide receivers playing at linebacker. And you notice all of these guys he's bringing in are very athletic, very fast. Some of them may be slightly undersized for playing the position they're playing, but increasingly it's looking more and more like Seattle just with that little bit of adaptation. And I think that whilst they're going to... It's going to hit them hard if Shanahan does leave or when Shanahan does leave. I do think that defense is going to continue improving under Dan Quinn. Um, And I was maybe dismissive of the Falcons a moment ago, but it could be the big surprise of this Super Bowl that their defense does find a way to match up against uh, that brilliantly schemed Patriots offense. Over under 70 points combined in this game. Wow. Is that how high it's been set now? I'm setting it myself. (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, because I saw 63, something like that, in the week. And that had already gone up from about 57 immediately after the championship games. I'm going under because it's the Super Bowl. And I know that sounds a little bit cheesy, a little bit of a cliche, and there's probably no historical basis on it. But people get nervous. People make mistakes. 
and the quality of the scheming from that Belichick and, and Patricia defence. If it's 70, I'm going to say a shade under. But if there's been a game in recent seasons that has the kind of the smell of a shootout, this is probably the first one since the 49ers-Ravens game a few years ago. And even then, you didn't see that as a shootout going into it. It just kind of it turned into it with the 49ers' massive comeback in the second half. It's just very rare that that's the case in the big game. And I probably would say under. Now, if Houston had a, and I'm going back to the divisional round now, if they had a, <laughs> a decent offense, because they pressured Brady so well, that could have been an even closer game. Pittsburgh did absolutely nothing in terms of pressuring the quarterback. It's not a secret with Brady's whole career. If you pressure him, it affects the game like any quarterback. How will Atlanta do it? And will you be surprised, shocked, if the same game plan is applied as, as the Steelers did last week? I, I think the the problem with the Steelers against the against the Texans is that front seven. Whilst James Harrison has been brilliant this year, and, and and whilst they've got really exciting young players like Bud Dupree, that's not the the next tier talent that you get out of you know Whitney Merciless that you get out of their uh, number one pick from from a couple of seasons ago. Um, and there's my concern with the Falcons' offense. It, they're going to have to get internal pressure. That's the place where that you can get to Brady. Um, I think the tackles have played really well this year. Maybe a little bit underrated when we talk about decent offensive line play this year. And the way they're going to create that isn't necessarily going to be up the middle. I, I thought that uh, Grady Jarrett had a really, really, really good game last week against the uh, against the Packers. But it's going to be running stunts. It's going to be running the sort of things where you'll see Vic Beasley lining up on the outside and then them trying to get a double team with the end whether it's Brooks Reed whether it's Tyson Jackson and him actually looping back to the inside the problem with those sorts of stunts is those plays take three four seconds to develop Tom Brady has the quickest release of any quarterback in the league he's so good at spotting the mismatch getting the ball out you just watch how often that ball is out of his hand in less than two seconds after he's caught it from the center it's unbelievable and so whether those kind of pressure stunts will work against the Patriots I really don't know and that would be my big area of concern for the Falcons I think you're really really uh, really right to to highlight that finish this sentence if Tom Brady wins his fifth Super Bowl he is hands down unarguably the greatest quarterback of all time summed up nicely and if Matt Ryan wins his first (laughs) and if Matt Ryan wins his first maybe he enters that conversation of the top 20 list that I'm putting together right now maybe but not I think Matt Ryan has been a good quarterback I tell you what if Matt Ryan wins his first he enters the Hall of Fame conversation. I don't think he was close to it before now. And the fact that he's got four, five, six years still left on his career, they'll start to talk about him as a possible Hall of Fame quarterback. And to do it against New England, we saw Eli Manning got two against the Patriots. He's a Hall of Famer. Philip Rivers hasn't won a ring. Probably the same stat line as Matt Ryan when they finished their careers. But it always puts them over the top. Look at Rodgers, look at Breeze. Who do you think's got more to lose here? Because I think if, if Brady loses this game, he's 4-3 and three in Super Bowls. Belichick might get a knock too. Who do you think's got more to lose, Ryan or Brady? It's really, it's tough because I don't think either team really has that much to lose. I know that sounds crazy, but when you compare it to last year, when you when you had 
so much had been talked about with Cam and with that, that the quality of that defense and with like they'd just been the most hyped up team of the year. And so to be embarrassed in the way that they were, that felt like a really, really big way to lose. Whereas obviously Peyton, we knew it was going to be his last Super Bowl. Even if he wasn't willing to say it was going to be, his legacy is massively affected by the fact he's got two rings in the same way that John Elway's was by the fact that he got those two rings late in his career. Um, So it's interesting because the Falcons are such an exciting young team and if they can keep that offense going with Shanahan not there, you'd argue they'd keep coming back to this sort of stage. Whereas the Patriots, haven't they already cemented their legacy? uh, This will be their eighth appearance in what, 16, 15, 16 years, seventh appearance in 15, 16 years. If they win it the fifth time in that span, even if they go four and three, he's already tied the record for the most Super Bowl wins by a quarterback. Yes, he'll strike out on his own with a win, but I still think you make Tom Brady the best quarterback of all time, even if he loses this game. Now, I'm presuming whilst you're in Houston, you're going to go to one of Mr. Belichick's press conferences. Now, I might try and avoid them like the plague, to be honest. Oh, man. (laughs) That guy is so funny. And if you do have a question for him, if you were going to ask a question to him and you you wanted to get something other than the classic Belichick line, like he didn't see the the Falcons-Packers game, for instance, um, what, what would you ask him? Look... I One of the proudest moments of my young journalistic career, as I like to still claim it is, was very early on. In fact, the f- one of the first NFL London games I probably covered where I wasn't going as a fan but going as a journalist was when the Patriots came out and they played the Rams. And I sat down in the press conference. This was 2012, I think, off the top of my head. And they'd been on the flight overnight and they brought along Brady and Belichick. And then we got some kind of scrum one-on-one time with Vince Wilfork and a few other guys. And I asked a question to Belichick and he gave a like minute plus long answer. And genuinely, it was the proudest moment of my career and still might be right up there. Um, So the key is with Belichick is don't ask him about storylines, ask him about football. He is one of the most storied, intelligent, uh, you know, he's he's maybe the greatest football mind of our generation. Well, no, Joy, he is the greatest football mind that we've ever watched. And he's up there as the greatest of all time. And I, I, I asked him about, you know, the, the Patriots had a horrible record against NFC West teams at that point. They'd lost to the 49ers a couple of times in recent years. They'd lost to the Seahawks. They, you know, they, they, had a rough time against them and and the Rams I think had beaten them the previous season as well in um, St. Louis and so I said to him look what is it about the NFC West and the style of football that they play there that's given the Patriots so much so many problems over the past two seasons and the fact that I asked about style of football he started going into the way that in which divisions do tend to go in trends. It's amazing with this game, uh, with Atlanta going to the Super Bowl, that the NFC South is going to be the first division since the 2002 reshuffle to have every team go to the Super Bowl. But part of that is that one of the divisions where you'd argue every team has been good at some point is the AFC East, and yet nobody has been able to dethrone the Patriots. Um he just he knows everything about football. So talk to him about football and he'll talk to you back. He might just say we're focused on the Falcons. You never know. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I think that's it. I think you ask him something. It's it's difficult because if you ask him about the game in hand specifically, he doesn't want to give too much away. So you could talk to him about football, but if you talk to him about this game too much, so maybe it's about trying to find something that they did in the last game that can be related to this. Oh, I, I, it's... I, it's tough to say, and maybe I'll go to one of his press conferences and ask him, but um, I might just sit there and smile instead. I was going to talk to you about prop bets because it's always one of my favourite conversations during a Super Bowl. I just saw one uh, total touchdown passes by Tom Brady in this game. Now, there's an option to go for six plus here at 20 to one. Whoa. <laughs> um, are you going to take zero to five or what would you select right now? And also, what is your favourite prop bet? Six six plus is massive. Um, uh, you know, it's so mad, isn't it? The stuff about the toy cost. I remember toy cost, coin toss. Even I remember last year, uh, people wanted to talk about you know what color shoes Beyonce would be wearing when she joined Coldplay on stage, and it's you do get really stupid with them. I think I'd probably take naught to five right now. I. LeGarrette Blunt has been a big part of that offense this year and has led the league in in touchdowns and. Whilst James White and Dion Lewis have featured more in the playoffs and, and they do tend to catch the ball more, I'd be really surprised if we saw him throwing for, for six scores. I mean, I'd be surprised by that anyway, but I think I'd be specifically really surprised in this game. They're, they're an offense who can vary, but at the same time this year, of, of any season that you've watched the Patriots, one thing they've done that really hasn't been done by previous Patriots teams is throwing the ball deep. I don't know. I'm nearly convincing myself into him throwing six touchdowns now. Um, I haven't looked. I'll be honest with you. I haven't looked at the rest of the prop bets for this year. But it's it's always got to be about, you know, the silly stuff. I forget betting on the game. If I'm betting on the game, I go with over-unders and I go with, uh, you know, lines on the teams and, and handicaps. But, um, yeah, I haven't really had enough of a look at the Super Bowl ones this year. I really need to before I go out because I'm sure it'll be a topic of conversation on Radio Row. Now, we talked about Carl Shanahan quite a lot. Who do you think is going to replace him in Atlanta, assuming he does take the 49ers job? Well, so this is it. I think um, I think that they absolutely have a ready-made man on their staff ready to go because I believe, and I'm just, I'm literally, I'm fact-checking this as we speak. I know that I should know all this already because we're heading out there, but I just want to check that I am absolutely right on this because Matt LaFleur, the quarterback's coach, of the Atlanta Falcons, I'm pretty sure was with Shanahan at every stop he's been at in his uh, professional career so far. So he was there with him. Yeah, he was the offensive quality control coach in Houston. The quarterbacks coached in Washington and actually stayed on in that position uh, after Shanahan left um, and then became quarterbacks coach under the Falcons last year. So you just believe that they go, they stick with the guy who knows the system that they've run with such success this season. That can be the only way to stick with it as far as I can see. And what about the Pats? If you had to bet right now who you think would take over for Belichick, let's say four or five years from now, Matt Patricia or Josh McDaniels, who's a better fit for the team? I, I imagine that that's going to be if those two both stay there and every year we hear them both linked with other head coaching jobs and... and it's a funny one because someone said about Kyle Shanahan, wouldn't you just stay in Atlanta? And I think, no, because Dan Quinn has already got that job locked down for the next five to ten years if he wants it. Unless they completely fall to pieces, taking them to their second Super Bowl ever, he should be there for a very long time. 
Whereas with both Patricia and with uh, McDaniels, you imagine you're both sitting there going, maybe this is the year. Maybe this is the year that we get the shot. And when they do, it will be the fiercest contest between two men. And I do not see, outside of the fact that they've got to adhere to the Rooney rule, why the Patriots would bother interviewing anyone outside that building. If I had to absolutely put money on it right now, I would say Josh McDaniels, purely because I think Belichick and Brady are linked. And I think if Brady goes, Belichick might decide that's the same moment for him to go. And maybe you want the offensive mind to be working with Jimmy Garoppolo or whoever the new quarterback there will be at the end of the Brady era. So purely on what they'd have to deal with in the post-Sir Alex Ferguson era, as we've seen with Man United, you go with the guy that will be able to handle your biggest problem, the change of quarterback. Last couple of questions for you. Um, Chris Hogan is going to be key in this game. What did New England see when he was in Buffalo? Because Buffalo didn't see it. It's amazing. Bill Belichick seems to love former lacrosse players. Something about their physicality just means that they're, they're guys who seem to be successful on his team. Um, he is... The way that they've schemed Chris Hogan open, because we saw it in um, uh, on Hard Knocks a few seasons ago where he was referred to as 7-11, always open in training. And he's a guy who does have decent hands and he's a guy who does seem to uh, run the route tree as well as anyone of those kind of smaller bodied receivers tend to. I, I just think that it's a ca- if they'd had anyone else in the same role, would he have done as well as Chris Hogan last weekend? Maybe not. But it's just the Belichick way. And what's amazing about the way that he builds teams is that they don't have the best 53-man. I can't remember a season where they've gone to and won the Super Bowl where you would look at their pure 53-man roster and say, that is the most talented 53 men anywhere in the NFL in that one season. But he picks the right men for the offense. You see what happened with Jamie Collins leaving the season, which actually I thought negatively impacted their defense for about a three, four week period. But they brought in Carl Van Noy, from, uh, who's formerly at the Lions, and he was brilliant down the stretch in the last two or three games. And that's what Belichick does better than anywhere else, is finds the people that fit his scheme and fit his locker room better than anywhere else. And if I had that same magic touch, I would be a lot more successful than I am, Max. So, to answer your question simply, I don't know. Your day will come. <laughs> Some league questions quickly. Do you expect Rufflesberger to come back next season and play? Oh, yeah. I think that's just... It's a, it's a really tough question to ask a man in a really low moment. But didn't you sure, think it's so- weird how he's spoken to his agent and his wife about it? He's, he's the king of the feeling sorry for a little sorry for himself and wanting people to know how much he's hurting. We've seen it with injuries in the past and obviously right now we're seeing it with a loss. Ben Roethlisberger, to, um, to pull back the curtain, he does this, this article I'm currently writing for Sport Magazine. Roethlisberger does make it onto the, um, onto the top 20 all-time list as we see it at, uh, at Gridiron Magazine and, and the Gridiron Show. But he's not closing in on the top 10 right now. And he knows that he probably needs... I think the fact that in the, the two Super Bowl runs, particularly the first one they had, he was seen as more of a game manager. And uh, I sat down with Ben Roethlisberger and a number of other journalists when the Pittsburgh came out to play the Vikings a few years ago. He came over in the summer. We did a very silly photo call, Big Ben with Big Ben. And then we got to sit down with him for maybe 45 minutes an hour. 
and just pick his brain and chat to him about the team. And, and I asked him, as I, you know, you've won two Super Bowls already, consistent success. What is your focus? What keeps you focused now in your career 10 years in? And he said, I want to beat Terry. And by which he meant he wants to beat Terry Bradshaw's four Super Bowl rings for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Does he have it in him to win another three? I'd be shocked, particularly with the the coaching there probably doesn't quite live up to what it has done in the past. And I, does he have one more in him, though? There's every chance. And I think that if he was to win another one as the focal point of that offense, as he's become over the past five years since that second Super Bowl win, then he's cemented as one of the all-time greats. Now, I'm intrigued what you think of this. Like, Does the NFL have a soul anymore? You've got the Raiders moving to Las Vegas, probably. The Chargers have gone to L.A. The Rams have already moved to L.A. All about money. Uh, The NBA talking about expansion as opposed to replacing franchises and moving them elsewhere. What do you think about that question? Money is the huge deciding factor in almost anything any of these sports do. And we know this as guys who cover it in the U.K. and we see just how keen they are in expanding out here. Like... Uh, We love the game. We see how strong the UK fan base is. But there's no doubt that that move by the NFL is motivated by saying, well, as a sport, we are very unique to a single, maybe to two countries. We're not global, even in the same way that basketball can be global. So they've had to find a way to grow outside of their own borders. And that's because they want to make more money. They see a market. It's exploitable. I've been as disappointed about the team moves as anyone else, particularly the Chargers. I thought St. Louis was the one that made sense. St. Louis was never really an NFL town, and LA is such a huge market that I thought you could retain your soul and do that. But the San Diego move stuns me more than any other. And actually, I quite like the idea of them playing at the Galaxy Stadium to 30,000 fans. And I think people who say they're not going to be successful in LA, I, I think the team that win are going to be successful in LA. And right now the San Diego Chargers have a better roster and most importantly, a better quarterback than the LA Rams. And if you had to, you know, gun to my head and tell me that one of those teams was going to win a Super Bowl within five years, I'd say it's the Chargers hands down right now. Chargers Uh, will win the Super Bowl (laughs) within five years. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely what I said. Um, What makes no sense to me is why not the Raiders have the biggest following of any fan base in Los Angeles? Why not move the Raiders there and move the Chargers to Las Vegas? That's the Las Vegas move is the worrying one for me, because whilst I don't care about the religious aspect and I don't care about the anti-gambling and I don't care about any of that as far as the NFL is concerned, you're not going to get more than, say, 10,000 season ticket holders at a Las Vegas franchise because not many people live there. And the people that live there mostly work in the entertainment and casino industry. So they're not the kind of people who are going to be going to regular sports events. What you're going to find is huge away support, like we've seen in San Diego over the past two seasons. And you're going to see a huge transient fan base, people who are there on stag dues, who are, you know... They're looking at lastminute.com and they're buying tickets to Britney Spears in the evening and in the daytime. Oh, have you seen the the Vegas Raiders are playing against, you know, the New York Giants that afternoon and there are tickets on StubHub for whatever. Let's go to that. They're not football fans. It's just an event for them. That's my real concern is that Vegas move. And that's the one that does make my skin crawl a little bit. But I just think, to come back to your original question, does the NFL have a soul? I think it does, and I think it does because the NFL, like all American sports, in the way that the college system works and the draft system works, 
so much of the NFL is about the stories and about the players who are able to fight their way out of extreme American poverty and become heroes to so many and how much charity work they do. And, you know, even certain people who you might not like on the field, like Richard Sherman, like Ndomakin Sue, like these guys are really good guys off the field who care about their communities, who care about their teams, who care about the communities they came from. And so I think the soul still exists at that grassroots level. I just hope it's not going to be pounded out of the game by, you know, all this team moving nonsense. Right, five real quick questions for you. You can answer these as short as you want. So, first one, favourite story this season for you in the NFL? Oh, I could find it easier to answer least favourite story, I reckon. Uh, from a pure guy watching game perspective, it's Aaron Rodgers going from being a mess in the first four or five weeks to playing better than anyone else on the field in that last eight, nine game stretch because... Every week after I'd watched Red Zone and everything else, the first game I turned to was watching the Packers and watching what he was doing because I think we are privileged to be watching the all-time greatest quarterback in terms of pure talent that we've ever seen. I don't think he'll top that list unless he learns to stop freelancing and learns to play within timing and learns to do all those things that are going to make his team more successful. But just from a watching perspective, I found it a real joy. Who would you take if you had to take one of these two quarterbacks for the next three seasons, Brady or Matt Ryan? Three seasons. Am I the coach? You can be, yes. <laughs> if Belichick's not the coach, uh, I think I still take Brady. I think I still take Brady. He's just so competitive and he just knows how to win. And you just feel like he will do everything to make sure that team wins. Who's closer to a Super Bowl, Pittsburgh or Green Bay? Ooh, we just did this on our Gridiron Show podcast, and I, I'm going to say Green Bay. You don't think Pittsburgh with all those offensive weapons? Uh, yeah, but the problem is they never seem to stay healthy and on the field at the same time. And, you know, finally they got a healthy O-line, and Ben probably had his worst season in the last five. And I think Pittsburgh are probably set up to win the Super Bowl if you see, if it was soonest and I was looking over a five-year projection and they didn't change anything in the way Green Bay's approach is, then I might say Pittsburgh. But if I'm looking at next season purely, which I think is what I was doing in my head, then I'd say I think Green Bay are ready to make that step up next. If Pittsburgh go out in this offseason and they spend big on it, they've got cap room. I think they've got about $35 million in cap room. And there are some big edge pass rushes available, none more so than Melvin Ingram from the San Diego Chargers, who fits their scheme beautifully. If I'm the team in Pittsburgh, I'm offering him $14, $15 million a season to go up there with the, the top name pass rushes in the league in order to get him into my building, because I think he changes everything that defense does. Then I might switch my pick to the Steelers if they make the right moves. But these are both teams who aren't great at free agency. They're both really good drafting teams who are terrible in free agency. Um, and somebody's going to hit me up on Twitter and start telling me about all the brilliant free agent signings the Steelers have made. But yeah, I, it's so hard to say now before the offseason starts. But I just about think the Packers shade it. And that's probably because of Aaron Rodgers more than anything else. The penultimate one, and I think a lot of people need to understand that the commissioner's role, when he passes the trophy to the owner and the, the MVP, he gets off the stage very quickly. Even when Brady and him were on good terms, there's no conversation involved there. The commissioner gets off the stage. But how fast, if the Pats do win, will Goodell get off the stage? 
Usain Bolt fast. I uh, like I, like blink and you'll miss him. Last one, Super Bowl prediction for Atlanta, New England. I feel like I should go with what I've gone with in our Gridiron Super Bowl preview magazine, but the more and more I've talked about it, the more I think I've gone too low on the scoring. I said in the magazine, and this is the problem with magazines, we had to give our prediction literally on Sunday night while I was still a few beers deep. I said 27-17 to the Patriots, based purely on coaching. I think it'll be tighter than that. I'm going to say now 27-24 Patriots. Okay, so by, by so the I, time it's I, Sunday, I, it'll be at Atlanta by three. <laughs> I'll be at Atlanta by 14 at some point this week. I've got to hedge my bets, mate. So you can see Will Gavin on Twitter at Will Gav and Gridiron Magazine, Gridiron Podcast. You've mentioned the Sport Magazine article. When's that coming out? Uh, Sport Magazine, is, as announced today, the last ever edition of Sport Magazine as they move to a more online, digital-based form with TalkSport. But uh, yeah, that'll be out um, available if you live in London for free next week um, and you'll be able to get it online on the same day via the Sport Magazine app or via the TalkSport website as a PDF. Um, it'll have the top 20 quarterbacks of all time and also a little advert for our Super Bowl party underneath as well, which is happening at Bloomsbury Bowl Lanes again this year. And you can find out more information on our Twitter at Gridiron. Thanks for letting me get my plug in. No, go, <laughs> go do it. And while my neighbours start drilling again, uh, I, will, <laughs> I will ask you one more. You can promote uh, Gridiron. You're going to be podding every day from Radio Row? We pod every day from Radio Row, so Monday to Friday. I think Saturday will probably take off, and then Sunday. Uh, on the Sunday, I'm going to be doing live updates for Talk Sport uh, during extra time. So if you're unable to watch the game live, I'll be doing every 15 minutes on Talk Sport's extra time show. So every bulletin, every 15 minutes of every break. Um, and I'll also be doing the New Era Europe Twitter takeover. It's going to be me tweeting live from the stadium and from Radio Row that week. So there's loads of ways to hear what I'm doing. Um, if you go to at Gridiron on Twitter, uh, Monday, uh, Sunday night, we're going to the Royal Rumble. And um, so Monday's podcast might not have a lot to do with uh, American football. I'm not going to lie. Um, we might even just do one on Sunday as a special. Uh, but I'm planning to... The Super Bowl week is an unbelievable privilege that we get to go and cover it and that our sponsors at Touchdown Trips and the guys that we work with help us get out there and and the guys at TalkSport and everything else. So I I can never complain about being there, but it's a long week. Like You work like 16-hour days every day and it's hard work and by the time you get to the Monday afterwards, you are shattered. And yeah, I'll probably enjoy a couple of beers one night or two. I know we're meeting up with the Around the NFL guys one night, but... Yeah, I'm planning to cut loose at the Royal Rumble, so maybe doing a podcast immediately afterwards is a bad idea. Around the NFL sounds fun. So you can join me, Will, and Bob Ballard on Monday morning on TalkSport. I'm going <laughs> to get my, my NBA update in there between Super Bowl updates. <laughs> uh, you can give your opinion on the game as well. I hope you'll be doing your NBA update live from our Bloomsbury Lanes party. I hope Max. so. That'll be, the, that'll be the key thing right there. I'll be, I'll be throwing down a pair and uh, updating you all on NBA. <laughs> <laughs> well have fun Excellent. in Houston as you say you are living the dream and pass my regards to the around the NFL team yeah it's it um when Greg came out to the UK to cover a game this year we went for some beers with him then and they were really they're really good guys and and so we're um we're hoping Greg's going to come and do some stuff with us on Radio Row and uh, we're hoping that leads to beers with the whole team and and uh, catching up with them while we're out there. But it, like I say, it's crazy busy, so plans go awry very quickly. Well, enjoy the parties if you get into any of them, and uh, shall speak to you soon. 
Yeah, I've spent the last week emailing the guys from the Maxim party going, come on, guest list, surely. I can't afford $3,500 for a ticket. That's mental. Thank you to my two guests today, Jeff Reinbold and just now, Will Gavin. There was so much NBA news this week that I, I didn't want to open with the show on the NBA to overshadow the big game on Sunday, of course, the Super Bowl. But let's quickly do NBA. The Cavs, <laughs> their last 10 games, they're 4-6. and six. Uh, They beat Brooklyn and Oklahoma City the last two to slow down what has been a seven-day media storm. Began with LeBron James calling for another playmaker to be added to this roster that the Cavs have. They have a remaining roster spot available. He had strong words a couple of times. He was tweeting. He said it was a shitty 2017 so far. And there's tension between James and the owner, Dan Gilbert. Gilbert, remember, agreed to spend unconditionally on talent regardless of the luxury tax when James returned to Cleveland in 2014. To be fair to Gilbert, last season, the Cavs' payroll was $107 million. This year, it's $127.5 million. They pay $27 million in luxury tax. I think LeBron James should stop whining. They've brought in Kyle Korver. They've brought in Channing Frye. They gave J.R. Smith a huge contract extension. They signed Tristan Thompson to a max deal, LeBron's guy. Tristan Thompson is not a max player. He's got Kyrie Irving. He's got Kevin Love. After the New Orleans loss last week, James said, I just hope that we're not satisfied as an organization. He said veterans like Raymond Felton and Michael Beasley were available last summer. And the Cavs, you know, now they're with their rookies. Kay Felder, DeAndre Liggins, they wanted those guys to develop. Hasn't been the case, not quick enough anyway. So LeBron feels the team needs to improve in order to repeat. And then he adds, if that's what we want to do. Now, David Griffin, the general manager, he thinks it's on the court that's the problem right now. They stem this losing streak, like I mentioned, last si- lost six of their last eight games before the Nets and the Thunder victories at home. Griffin's got a point here. They've spent so much, and you know that Dan Gilbert, David Griffin are never going to come out and call out LeBron James. They need him to win titles. They need him to build this franchise in Cleveland. I think he's fair to say to LeBron James, the on-the-court product needs to be better. He sees Golden State adding Kevin Durant, though, does LeBron. After 73 wins, they go and add someone like KD. I'm not concerned with this. Last March, before the Cavs won the title... They were on a New York trip. They lost to the Brooklyn Nets and they had a very big and important and guys calling out team meeting after that game and things changed after then. But during that game, they looked miserable. They did not look like a team. The coaching change at that point hadn't had much of an impact. And then they went and won the championship. Every year Cleveland does this. And LeBron James, you know what? He sees the unicorns of the NBA. That's Joel Embiid, Kristaps Porzingis, DeMarcus Cousins, getting all the headlines along with, and even more so, James Harden, 250-point triple-doubles this season, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant in Golden State, and Stephen Curry propping up those names. And he wants the attention back. And every time he does, the media flock to him. He says a couple of things like this, and it goes from there. I'm not concerned. That's why I'm not concerned with this because Cleveland has it every single year. I'm just interested in monitoring uh, the situation while the Cavs have several trade exceptions to enable them to potentially acquire another player. Rajon Rondo is one that's been touted for that and we're going to get to the Bulls right now. Wednesday last week, Chicago, they lose to Atlanta 119-114 to despite being up 10 points 
with five minutes to play. Jimmy Butler had 40 points in the game. Dwayne Wade had 33. And they blasted their teammates in the locker room after the game. Next to their guys, they called them out. D. Wade, how about this quote? I don't know if I see enough guys who really want it. I wish that I could say that everyone in here is going to go home and not eat tonight. These games are supposed to hurt you. How about Jimmy Butler? Quote, we weren't guarding anybody, doing whatever we wanted to do. Story of our year, over and over. Well, Rajon Rondo had something to say about that. He went to Instagram to probably post the number one NBA social media hit that we've had. And I like how the league doesn't stop its players from having vetting their opinions online. Rajon Rondo's post in full... And bear with me, I'm I'm sure you've read it already. But he posted a picture of his former teammates in Boston, Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. And this was the post that Rajon Rondo responded to Butler and Wade's comments. My veterans would never go to the media. They would come to the team. My veterans didn't pick and choose when they wanted to bring it. They brought it every time they stepped in the gym, whether it was practice or a game. They didn't take days off. My veterans didn't care about their numbers. My veterans played for the team. When we lost, they wouldn't blame us. They took responsibility and got in the gym. They showed the young guys what it meant to work. Even in Boston, when we had the best record in the league, if we lost a game, you could hear a pin drop on the bus. They showed us the seriousness of the game. My vets didn't have an influence on the coaching staff. They couldn't change the plan because it didn't work for them. I played under one of the greatest coaches and he held everyone accountable. It takes 1-15 to to win. When you isolate everyone, you can't win consistently. I may be a lot of things, but I'm not a bad teammate. My goal is to pass what I learned along. The young guys work. They show up. They don't deserve blame. If anything is questionable, it's the leadership. That's pretty damning. And that's Rondo's, first of all, his tactic to get out of Chicago. He wants to be waived, potentially move to Cleveland and win a championship. I get what he's doing. It's smart. It's savvy. It's also true. It's also honest. It's honest like Wade and Butler was saying to the team, essentially, you guys aren't playing as hard as you should be. You're not good enough to win games. Butler and Wade want the ball at the end of a match, down the stretch in the important times. They want the ball. And the Chicago team are offended by that, this hero ball. On Friday, they had the morning meeting after these posts and these comments. They had their worst performance of the season that night against the Heat afterward. Wade and Butler didn't start in the game. This can't happen. If... If I'm a reporter in this locker room and D-Wade or Jimmy Butler are saying what they're saying, you have to ask to the players, who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Who are you referencing right now? Wade and Butler have to go to the players privately. It all comes down to this though. Fred Hoiberg, the coach, he's not going to sort these three out. He's not of the mind to sort three huge egos like this out to get on the same page and play, like Rondo said in in Boston, with Garnett, Pierce. Allen and Rondo. General manager Garth Foreman. They had a shocking off-season along with owner Jerry Reinsdorf. There was no plan. These two cannot get along with coaches. They've had more misses than hits in the draft and no clue whatsoever how to build a roster in the modern NBA. The balls were tipped to flirt between the 7th and the ninth or 10th spot in the Eastern Conference. That's exactly what they're doing. In reality, The Chicago Bulls aren't underachieving. They're right where most expected them to be. In-house and now in public view, it's not going well in Chicago. And Carmelo Anthony of quadruple overtime fame after his 45 points didn't have enough where the Knicks actually lost to Atlanta in four overtimes. 
It was episode 11,000 of the New York Knicks implosion show last week. Carmelo Anthony now officially being shopped. The Knicks spoke to the Cavs about a Kevin Love swap. Now the Clippers are looking for a third team to facilitate a mellow trade. And Boston are also involved. The Clippers don't want to ship any of their big three. So you've got JJ Redick, Austin Rivers, Jamal Crawford as potential trade pieces. Not enough. That's where they're looking for a third team. Boston have the Brooklyn Nets pick. They don't want to give that up. They've got other picks. Amir Johnson, Jay Crowder, Marcus Smart. Assets. A lot of them are going to have to be paid next season. Kamala Anthony hasn't made the All-Star game. He's booed by his own fans in the game at home at Madison Square Garden against the Charlotte Hornets, which they won, by the way, and Melo hit a shot down the stretch. I'm interested to know who leaked the Kevin Love story. Was it New York showing Anthony that they want him out? Because Carmelo has said that he would consider waiving his no-trade clause if management took a different direction. Was it Cleveland backing their guy Kevin Love amidst LeBron's shouting and crying about the team and how it's made? Carmelo has a no-trade clause along with two other players in the league. If you're interested, it's Dirk Nowitzki and LeBron James. He is your third or fourth guy if you go to the Clippers. He's an isolation player. Back in the days of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, wing players who dominated the ball, that was the fashion. Now it's all about point guards. But you have to be able to shoot, you have to be able to create, rebound, assist, everything. And even defend. Carmelo can score the ball. One of the greatest scorers of all time. The Knicks have lost 15 of their last 20 since Christmas. And Anthony is continually asked about his future in New York. It's about time. We moved on. February the 23rd, trade deadline. I think it's going to happen. I think I think we are coming towards the end of the Kamala Anthony in New York era. And my final point on the NBA this week, it was a quadruple NBA overtime on the US Sports Podcast too. The awful news, obviously catastrophic, hugely frustrating, sad, upsetting, Donald Trump signing the executive order to stop all refugee arrivals for four months into the United States and, of course, Syrian arrivals indefinitely. The NBA, and I understand that the NBA is on the bottom of a lot of people's lists, but this is a sports show and the NBA has contacted the US State Department to understand the effect it might have on its players and its workforce. The Milwaukee Bucks rookie, Thon Maker, he carries an Australian passport. Luol Deng, he carries a British passport, but they have Sudanese roots. The key here, though, and the Bucks were worried about Maker because they were having a, they were playing a game in Toronto the other day, and they were worried about him having to cross back through the border. These two are from South Sudan, and that's not on this list of seven countries that Donald Trump has banned uh, from coming into the United States for the next three months or so. Mike Bass of the NBA said, "We're a global league." Proud to attract the very best players from around the world. I'll tell you what the NBA do do. They have several global initiative programs, including one that a lot of people have heard of, Basketball Without Borders. Basketball Without Borders recruits, develops, it invests in Sudanese players. The Sudan is on this list, along with Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen and Somalia. There are several top Sudanese players, according to Woj of the Vertical, that are attending American high schools and colleges on visas right now. And they could become NBA draft picks. Adam Silver was in London a couple of weeks ago. I asked him about Donald Trump. I asked him about Brexit. And on Brexit, he said, we pay attention to anything that affects borders. Donald Trump is now specifically affecting who comes into the United States. He is controlling borders 
which is going to have a huge impact for businesses, for refugees, for people escaping war, but of course too, the NBA, which is an international, global league. We should be concerned about the NBA's workforce and the NBA's right to get ahead of this and make sure their workforce is taken care of and they can still bring in players from around the world. Thanks to our official hosts, Audio Boom, for allowing the US Sports Podcast to be possible. You can head there to find the official page of the podcast. Please also leave a review on iTunes where you can subscribe and listen to the show on your device of choice. I'm on Twitter, at Max underscore Whittle. And hey, if you've got money on the Super Bowl, good luck. My favorite prop bet, Tom Brady, to throw six touchdown passes or more. Go put some money on it. Not too much, though. Johnny Manziel, might see you in Hamilton next season. I'll speak to you next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>